because we, we started last week our study in the Gospel of John by doing a big introduction, and you can go online for oakchurch.com to listen or watch that if you missed it. There, there are these booklets. The title of this sermon series is Believe, and so if you did not get one of these, you can grab one on the way out today. Use them in, in your personal devotions to take notes during the sermon. Also serves as your community group resource. But we're into the actual text of John today. You know, there are certain events, generational happenings that are so momentous, so impactful, that you literally remember where you were and what you were doing when they happened. So I I know my dad, who grew up in the 40s and 50s, remembers day, time, hour, place, where he was November 22nd, 1963, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And so many of you who were alive then remember that day as well. I was a child of the 70s, and so by the time Ronald Reagan became president, I was just getting ready to leave elementary school. But I remember that day, only three months in office, when someone came in and said, President Reagan has been shot. I still remember I was in Eastridge Elementary in the hallway, right then, right there, heard about this thing, wondered what it meant. 9-11, of course, is our generation's version of this. Most of you know, most of you remember exactly what you were doing and where you were when you got the news. We were in a pastor's meeting at some local restaurant. This was 2001. We, we got the word that something had happened. So we rushed back to the office. We dialed up our AOL accounts. Okay, no high speed, right? We dialed them up, waited 20 minutes for the pictures to download on the screen. And there it was. Life is forever altered. Life is forever changed. It's a defining moment for this generation. The Apostle Paul, Apostle John, I'm sorry, in these first five verses is writing about such a moment. But this wasn't just the defining moment of a decade or the defining moment of his life or even the defining moment of a whole generation. John is writing to us in these first five verses to tell us about the defining moment of the history of the world. The defining moment of the history of the cosmos, the universe. And John says, is going to tell us, I was there. I remember. I know. I can tell you everything about what this season was like. And this season has not ended. It's enduring. It is, it is ongoing. And the way John wants to communicate this to us, he's going to introduce us to this person he calls the Word. And so we're going to look at this together. I'm going to invite one of our elders up, Dave Fiore. He's going to come and read this passage and pray for us. And as I now want to do, I'd love for us to all stand together to hear the reading of God's Word, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Please pray with me. Dear God, we are just so grateful this morning to come before you, to worship you, to sing praises to you, and to sit under faithful teaching. And God, the, the amazing 
trueness and reality, truth of this, this little passage that says, in the story of you and us, it has always been about Jesus Christ, your son. And that before the beginning of time, it was always your plan to make him the center of your plan. And today, he is the sole source of our hope and faith and trust in you. And I just pray that you would be with us this morning, be with Pastor Paul, and let your Holy Spirit work through him and, and, uh, and work through us as, and give us open hearts as we um, hear your word and allow us to hear what you want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave. John makes an astounding claim. He said, the word has come, and it is the decisive event in all of human history, and John wants to tell us why. What is it about this word that is so significant, so life-altering, so life-changing, that if all of us here were to understand it, we would not, could not walk out these doors today unchanged. And so John is going to tell us about the magnitude of the word, He's going to tell us about the makeup of the word, what makes the word the word. Then he's going to tell us about the word's mission. So magnitude, makeup, mission. Let's look at magnitude first in verse 1. In the beginning, John says, now does that sound familiar? You've heard that somewhere in the Bible before, right? So, okay, Genesis 1-1 for those playing along at home. And remember that when Moses wrote those words in the beginning, He was writing to the people of Israel who were wandering around in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And they had been through quite an experience. Slaves for 400 years in a strange land. Now God delivered them, told them to go back to this promised land. They're just a tiny, itty-bitty people compared to the nations around them. And they would have, it would have been completely understandable why they would have been I had some questions about what was going on. God, what's your plan here? What's your purpose? Where are you taking us? What's going on? And God wants to make it really clear to Israel in Genesis 1-1 through Moses that in the beginning, before there ever was, before there was any pharaohs, before there were any plagues, before there were any problems, world leaders, nations, empires, before any of that, guess what? There was just me. I was just me. So Israel, if you're worried that I don't have a handle on what's going on here, rest assured, rest assured, I spoke this whole thing into existence by my very word, by my breath. So this was an amazingly profound statement for the people of Israel. Now, can you see what John is doing here? See, the coming of the word, and he kind of keeps us in suspense, He doesn't identify the word until verse 17, later in the prologue, it finds him, of course, as Jesus Christ himself. He says, let let me tell you about the word. This person, the word, is literally on par in every way with the eternality of the God of the universe. People, this word itself is eternal. And this eternal word came into our world, and everything changed, John seems to be saying, because of it. See, here's, here's what I think John is doing. 
We know that he's, we looked at this last week, that John is writing so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in his life and in his name have life. And I think John, for his readers, and John for us, wants us to come face to face with the audacity of this claim. See, see, John, see, if we walk out of here, meh, this morning, neutral, passive, I don't, I don't think we've, we've understood what John has actually claimed here. Now, we may dismiss it. We may disregard it. We may turn our backs on it. We may, we may say, this is foolishness. This is crazy. And by doing so, we acknowledge we actually do understand what John is claiming. But the one thing we cannot do, people of God, is remain neutral. This is a reality, John says, that must be reckoned with. We have to reckon with it. We have to, to wrestle with it. That's what John is wanting to communicate through the magnitude of this title he gives to Jesus called the Word. Now, why does John use this word, which in the Greek is logos, he translated the word, what, what's that about? There's two things I think John's wanting to do. Remember, at the time, in the surrounding Greek and Roman culture, plenty of gods, plenty of paths to spirituality. Remember how Paul in Athens in Acts 17 is going around preaching on Mars Hill, and he says, listen, you guys have got a god for everything. You even have a little tiki statue for the unknown god, right, in case you, in case you miss one. And, and, and this was the polytheistic culture that was a part of John's time as well, of course. And one of the terms that, that the Greeks, Romans, the ancients used to denote this idea of spirituality was logos. See, in our, in our culture and time, lots of people can use the term spiritual. You know, there's many paths. You know, spirituality is what I create for myself. Spiritual, spirituality is what gives meaning to my life. I'll take a little of this and a little of that, and I'll cobble it all together. This was the, Logos was the equivalent. John, what John is saying by using this word, he says, you think you know Logos, little l. But I'm going to tell you about Logos, big L. I'm going to talk to you about not a word, a way, a path, a, a direction. I'm going to tell you about the word, the only word. And this is a reminder for us, for Oaks, that Jesus will always have a home in a pluralistic culture as long as he stays in his place. As long as we don't claim anything unique about him. As long as we don't claim anything extraordinary, anything decisive. Let me, let me take it a step further. Liberal Christianity, which seeks to take Jesus and to sort of morph him and his teachings to fit the cultural values and priorities of the day. Liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity, will always find a home in acceptance in secular culture. Always. But let me tell you where liberal Christianity never finds a home. The liberal Christianity never finds a home in the persecuted church. It doesn't have the stomach. It doesn't have the roots. It, it blends in. It vanishes. There's nothing to distinguish it. 
See, the persecuted church is the persecuted church because it stands on the uniqueness and authority of Jesus Christ. Okay, what kind of word do you worship? Do I worship? I think that's one reason why John uses this term, logos. But there's a second reason I think it's even more important. Remember, John is a Jew, born and raised in Jerusalem. He has an extensive Old Testament background. When you read Paul's, I mean, John's letters, for example, the book of Revelation, his last letter, more references to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. John knows his Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, oftentimes when it says that the Lord appeared to his people, like he shows up, it then describes how he shows up. It shows up by his word, okay? And let me give an example from 1 Samuel 3. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Now listen to this. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? You cannot separate God and his word. You know, there, there's a movement underfoot, again, in progressive liberal Christianity. It might be called red-letter Christianity. But it's this idea that the words of Jesus hold special sway. The words of Jesus hold special authority over the rest of the Bible. Of course, pick and choose which words of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount is great for progressives, okay? John 1, not, not so much. And John's saying, no, 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 no. What you have to know is that you can't separate God from his word. When God appears, he appears through his word. We don't worship the Bible. But we worship the God that is revealed in this Bible. And we dare not, dare not separate them. John is saying God has spoken decisively through the word in this person of Jesus Christ. It's how he's revealed himself. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Just kind of impresses upon us the magnitude of what Jesus Christ claims for himself and what the New Testament claims for Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us how? By his son. Isn't that interesting? So the prophets would deliver what? Words. Words about God. Words about truth. Words about life. Words about humans. Now John says, oh, he's spoken by his word all right. Capital W. And you and I have to come to terms with that, that Jesus is not merely on the smorgasbord of postmodern spirituality his claims are unique. And that has an, ama- it's an amazing statement of magnitude. Now, what we have to ask is what led John to say this? Now, in some ways, that's what the rest of the book is committed to. But I want to point us to what he says specifically in, this, in these texts, in this text that we're looking at, when he talks about number two, it's our second point, the makeup of the word, or what, what makes the word the word. And again, John just... I mean, he, we go deeper down the rabbit hole here. Okay, so, so first thing he says in verse 1, 
he identifies very clearly the word was God. Pretty clear, John wants to identify the word, Jesus Christ, as nothing less than God himself. In fact, the Greek can literally be translated, the word was continually God. He didn't, he, he wasn't created. He didn't appear as, as, as a man. He didn't come into existence. He wasn't made by the Father. In fact, the Word has always been God. And the Word is God's supreme revelation of Himself. And this is echoed throughout the New Testament. Colossians 1.19 For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, to live. Philippians 2.6-7 Though he was in the form of God, this is talking about Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus is not simply a God or a way or a, or a path. He was not created contra Jehovah's Witnesses or or Mormons. And a lot of times you'll get into this whole game. Uh, what does the Greek say? And doesn't it say that Jesus is a God? And we don't have time to, to, to get into all that, except to say you don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know one iota. How about that? Okay, of Greek. Some, some of you got that. Okay, some of you got that. To know that's not true, look at verse 3. If, if, if if someone shows up at your doorstep and says, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. Well, I believe he's the son of God. Well, I believe that too. But I believe he was eternal. I believe he was God and with God. Okay, you don't have to know any Greek to know that's not true. Verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You see, John was addressing the precise error that, that we often confront in our time, that, again, Jesus was simply on the smorgasbord of spirituality, made, created, but, but has no prominent position among the gods of the age. And John wants to make it really clear. Oh, by the way, if you think this, this God was made, if you think this word came into being later on, an invention of human minds, let me just tell you something. Nothing was made without him. Nothing. In fact, he made everything. I'll circle back around to that in just a second. See, this is why when we come, we have to understand this, for folks, because we're going to come to some pretty tough statements in the Gospel of John later on, where Jesus is going to say things like, if you've seen me, guess what? You've seen the Father. See, they're saying, oh, come on, Jesus, show us the Father. Bring the, fi- bring the thunder, bring the fire down from, sky- from the sky. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus, we, we want to come to know this God. Tell us how to do this. And what does he say? No one comes to the Father except how? Through me. Through the Son. You can't have one without the other. No matter what a postmodern culture tells you, you cannot have God without Jesus. And of course, that's the rub, isn't it? That claim, that magnitude of the fact that the Word was God. One of our members of our pastoral team had the opportunity over the last year to be at the Capitol and to lead a Bible study. 
And attending this Bible study were different state workers, people in um, cabinet positions, government executives, names that you, that you might recognize or know, because they wanted to hear more about spirituality, more about the Bible, more about Jesus. And it, this pastor noted that everything was cool when we're talking about the way of Jesus, right? Sermon on the Mount Jesus, kind and forgiving and gentle Jesus, which is, by the way, not to disparage, 100% true. But he said, things became different when they got to what passage? John chapter 1. And they just sort of walked away, metaphorically. And in some ways, not good, but good, they understood. See, they understood, maybe some better than us sometimes, they understood the nature of this claim that the Word was God. But John says a second thing about this word, the, the makeup of this word. Look back in verse 1. It says the word was with God. Now, verse 2, he, he, he was in the beginning with God. John seems to be saying on one hand, Jesus Christ, absolutely, 100% God. But Jesus Christ also distinguished from God, in this case, God the Father. So this little Greek term, with, pros, with the Father means to be intimately involved. It means to have an active relationship. You see, this is why this verse became one of the go-to verses in resolving the theological controversies of the day about the Trinity. Who is Jesus? Was he a spirit that appeared as a man? Was he always a man and then was created or... You know, was, was he an apparition, a ghost? Who, how exactly are we to think of Jesus? And, and John distills this very clearly for us. He was God, but yet, yet, listen, he was with God. He was, he was God, but he is distinguishable from God the Father. He is God the Son. And we, and I was about to say, let me try to explain this to you, but that's foolish. We've been trying to do this for 2,000 years. Okay, but how can the word be God? In other words, with God, I mean, of the same essence, of the same substance, one being, but at the same time be with God? Like, how does this work? This is the best, I don't know who came up with this analogy. If, if, it was, if you like the analogy, it was mine. If it's, you don't like it, it was Piper or Keller or somebody. Anyway, I don't remember where this came from, but. Have you ever said something that you wish, the moment you said it, that you could just grab it back? Like, it's out of your lips, and what do you do? You're like, oh, okay, I wish I had not said that. And, and, and what do we often say when that happens? We say, I, I didn't mean that. That wasn't me. I, I don't know where that came from. You know, we say things like this. So it brings up an interesting philosophical quandary that I want you to think about for about two seconds and forget it, okay? Are you and your words one and the same thing? If you think about it, it's like, not, not exactly. Yes, but no. Like, I'm speaking, these are my words, but as soon as they go from me and I'm, and I'm standing here, they're separate from me. How do, we, how do we relate those? See, Jesus understood this when he said, out of the abundance of the heart... A man speaks. 
See, you, you can't separate you and your words. Your words are distinct, but they're a part of you, but they distinguish you. And I think that's what John is driving at here. That he's upholding this Trinitarian reality that Jesus was God, continually being God, while at the same time being distinct from what the Jews would have known as God the Father. It's a profound statement. It's a life-changing, altering sort of claim. John says that this is so. And we have beheld it. And we have seen it. And we have witnessed it. And and we're going to see John unpack this throughout his text. But John doesn't leave it there in these first five verses. He says that the word that was God and that word that was with God came for a specific reason. To accomplish a specific mission. Look back at the text. Verse 3. It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this idea of the light shining in darkness, where have we heard that before in Bible class? Well, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? God, when God made the heavens and the earth, what did he say? Let there be what? Light. Part of God's design was creating, bringing something out of nothing. When God spoke by his word, ex nihilo, he, created, he, he didn't need anything to make that happen. All he needed was a revelation of himself. And it's interesting when you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, it gives subtle clues to this idea that God is three in one, doesn't it? Because what does it say? That the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Genesis 1 and 2. God says, let us. We're like, who is us? Who who is us? And what John seems to be saying, and Paul echoes it as well, is that Jesus Christ was in fact the agent for creation. That, That part of what Jesus exists, that's not even the right way to put it, because he's never not existed, but one of the, the, the chief ends of the word is to create, to create life. First of all, life materially. Okay, so look at Colossians 1.16. For by him, this, he's talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And we're like, Jesus was involved in creation, Paul? And he just wants to make it clear. Oh, by the way, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus was there in Genesis 1. In fact, he was the principal agent of the Trinity in creating. That has really vast implications just in the material world. Just know this. Abraham Kuyper said this as a Reformed theologian 150 years ago. There's not one square inch of your life that Jesus Christ does not look at and say, that belongs to me. There are no inconsequential areas to our life. Jesus lays claim to all of it. All of it matters to him. All of it belongs to him. And Jesus, as the creator of material matter, is going to one day come and reign where? On the new earth. And in the new heavens. And he's going to establish 
his reign as the rightful king of his dominion. You see, God's word has so many implications, doesn't it? So, so, so one thing John is pointing us towards is that Jesus is the creator of life. That's one thing he creates. But you know what? It's not the most important thing he creates. He also creates not just material life, but what John's really focusing in on here is that Jesus has come to create spiritual life. So the word life in this text, there's two Greek words that you could use. One is bio, where we kind of get this idea of biology, physical life. And the other term is zoe. And it denotes more of this idea of, of spiritual life. What, what's John trying to say here? Folks, Jesus Christ came principally because he wanted to create a people for himself. See, this idea of darkness, it's physical darkness in Genesis 1, but here in John 1, John uses this idea of darkness as a metaphor for a world estranged from God. And so so think about your own life and just think about all the darkness that you often feel at work, on the campus, from the television set, um, from, from media, darkness in your own heart, Darkness in relationships. Darkness oftentimes, does it not, seems to be pressing all around. And what John is saying is that Jesus, the Word, came into this world, this darkness, and that the light has not been overcome. This light has not been mastered. This light is growing. It is penetrating. It is claiming It is changing hearts. Jesus, right now, in the body of Christ here at Four Oaks, is creating a people for himself. That's what the Word is doing right now. There are people here who may be completely obtuse to the claims of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, you are here because God wants to create in you spiritual life, to graft you in. I said this in the first service. You know, we don't do a lot of you know, altar call-ish sort of stuff, and there's a lot of cultural reasons for that. But don't mistake the absence of that for an absence of urgency around the idea that every single person in here has to contend with the claims of the Word. And that the Word came and died as Jesus Christ and bore our sin and was raised from the grave and that when we place our faith and trust in Him, we have life, eternal life, that's why we're here. If, if, if you're unsure of this, if you're unclear about this, if you don't know how to situate yourself in that, please come talk to us. We'll be pastors and elders up front here after the service, not to ring the bell and manipulate you, but to, but to, but to pray with you, to come alongside of you, to, to, to point you in this direction. So it says, Jesus, as the light, has come into the world. You know, it's interesting we're always having a fight here at, on the pastoral team. This is inside baseball stuff about this shade right here, right here. See this? I don't know if you know this, but this thing goes up. And please don't email me about this. Okay, you know, it goes up. And, and, and I, would, I mean, I would love for that to be open all the time, but then the sound people say it washes out the screens and all this. And this is why some of you will say, we need hymnals. And anyway, don't, don't go there, okay, this morning, all right? That's for a different time. But if we were to open that shade you would see blue. It's a beautiful day today. 
But I don't know if you know this, but did you know that there's actually stars there right now? And there's moon, but you just can't see them, right? Why? Because the sun is more powerful. You see, light, see, a lot of times we know light and darkness are opposites. But a lot of times we forget light and darkness are not of equal power. They are not. The reason it gets dark is because we orbit around the sun. It has nothing, though, to do with the sun itself. The sun is doing just fine what it was intended to do. It destroys darkness. We don't live in a Star Wars world. You know what I mean? The Force we got the light side of the force. This is a shout-out to all the nerds. The light side of the force and the dark side of the force. And whoever happens to be stronger, can, you know, the dark can rule, then the light can rule, and there's an ebb and flow. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Jesus came. There was a certainty in his mission that the light is stronger than darkness, and darkness cannot prevail. Jesus came to shine the light of the gospel into your heart in my heart to create life. Listen to the way Paul says this. It's almost as if Paul and John had conversations, which I know they did. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6. Paul says something interesting. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, now listen to this, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what John's talking about. He came to shine the light of his truth into your heart and in my heart, in your neighbor's heart, the one you're thinking about inviting to Easter but you're too embarrassed because of whatever, I don't know. His heart, her heart. And here's what I want you to see. We can have incredible confidence in the midst of darkness, in the midst of a dark world for folks. Because let me, let me point something out that's, that's fascinating about this text when it comes to the mission of the word. Next week, we're going to start with verse 6, and it starts talking about this man named John, John the Baptist. It's interesting that in the, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all begin talking about the ministry of Jesus by starting with John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was baptizing and Jesus went into the wilderness to be baptized. But that's, that's not where John starts. John starts at the very beginning. In eternity. He says that's when the ministry and mission of Jesus began. Before the prophecies, before the birth narratives, before the temple, before the baptism, even before creation even before creation, from all eternity, this word has been on a divine mission to die for you and to shine the light of the hope of the gospel into your life. To save us, to save people out there, and to bring us comfort today. I I don't know what darkness sort of shrouds you. What, what medical diagnosis or what broken relationship. You know, some of you have been tracking with this. I just thought I would update you just to tell you we're, we're journeying that road with you. You know, of course, my mom passed away about a year and a half ago, and Susan's dad has been slowly deteriorating in health, and we get the call. We have to hook it up to Tennessee tomorrow because he's in ICU, and 
It's precipitous in terms of his health, and it's just been a shock, to be honest. Didn't see it coming. And I know that there's so many of you who have stories that, that resonate with that, 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 that are in sync with that, your own, your own piece of darkness. What gives us hope to get in that car and to go minister in, in what appears to be a dark place? It is dark. God's working. Jesus has come. This is not the final word. God is creating a people for himself. He's making all things new. And most of us probably won't get to live to see it all. But one day, the word will return. And he will set up his rule and reign. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so folks, what are you going to do with this audacious claim? You can't not not do something. John calls us to reckon with reality as revealed in the Word. Let's pray.